Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. This means, of course, that we have to take on the opposition, which is the um, private sector, and our, one of our major purposes is to, to oppose state aid, taxpayers' money, for private schools. We don't mind that they exist. Uh, it's a free country. But if something's private, one would have expected people to pay for it, not us, you and me, as taxpayers, to do so. But that's what's been happening, and it's happening more and more to the point where some private schools get more than the local public school. Here we have um, a press release 875. Um, you'll find it on our website at www.adults.info. It usually goes up after the program, so you won't find it immediately, but be patient. We have the website and we put our press release up, but if you're hearing it today, you are there in the box seat. Press release 875 says, private school business plans are suffering from the pandemic wobblies. As the full economic effects of the pandemic hit the incomes of the insecure middle class, but not the wealthy, as JobKeeper and the mortgage holiday comes to an end in March, and as the private school hype gets rustier and rustier, many private schools have decided to freeze their fees. They need students. And their major method of keeping the lower orders out of their schools is no longer good for business. The Channel 9 ex-Fairfax Press tells us that in Victoria, where 36% of children attend private schools, the highest rate of any state in Australia and well above the OECD average, 47% of these schools have frozen fees and a further 6% are actually cutting them. Now, these figures, and I'm not so sure about these figures, but they're interesting figures, come from a group or an organisation called EdStart. I looked them up, and they actually are very entrepreneurial business that persuade parents to let them pay the fees at the beginning of the term or the beginning of the year, and then the parents have to pay them back every week. So it is really the afterpay of the education industry. So Ed Start paid the lump sum fees, as I've said, and their business model depends very much upon very, very insecure middle-class parents, which are perhaps the, growth, the, the, the biggest growth area of our, our social groups at the moment. Now, the EdSart figures are based on only 400 schools, and I think that's throughout Australia. But the Chief Executive, Jack Stevens, told The Age, across Australia, many schools kept their fees steady to assist families economically impacted by the pandemic. We found that nearly 40% of schools did not increase their 2021 fees, which is a massive jump from 7% of schools in 2020. They usually put them up 3% every year. Schools that charge at least $30,000 a year 
for Year 12 local students were more likely to freeze their fees, with more than half holding fees steady this year. This is in stark contrast to previous years where these schools had maintained a relatively consistent trend of fee increases of between 3% and even 4%, Mr Stevens said. Well, I'm not sure how we're, as taxpayers we are supposed to react to all of this, these, uh, we were supposed to say, oh, aren't these schools being uh, compassionate or aren't they being good? Uh, I don't know about that. Some parents, insecure parents who send their children to these schools may express relief and appreciation to the questionable lifeline offered to their children by private schools, but their teachers are not so sanguine. The Independent Education Union has complained that the frozen fees have been subsidised by freezers in teacher pay. So it's the teachers who are going to pay, not the schools and their assets. Meanwhile, Head Start should not be too worried. Although the bank balances of many parents in insecure employment have been affected by the pandemic, they can always fall back on the bank accounts and assets of their own parents, grandparents. And it's this enormous slush fund held by Australian grandparents, the baby boomers of the post-war generation, which is ignored, not by entrepreneurial organisations by its staff, oh no, they know very well where a lot of the money comes from for the school fees, but by the Commonwealth Government when they assess the neediness of private schools. The neediness of private schools is assessed on the income of the parents and the grandparents are forgotten. But a lot of us are still around. (laughs) I'm pre-war, so most of the post-war grandparents and the next generation are still around. Trevor Cobalt has been busy with his data analysis on this very interesting hunt and we, we are going to produce his findings. But we'll have a bit of a break, and then Maddie will come back, and she will tell you all about Morrison's private school funding model, which has ignored the bank of mum and dad. And the figures are quite startling. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, and length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war, and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago, this year. And we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda, and race hatred indoctrination. Now, it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed, but we understand what freedom is, and we fight for it every day, and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, Imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show, 
or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Well, you're listening to the Dogs Program, the Defence Governance Schools, and uh, we're now going to hear from Maddie on the um, bank balances of the grandparents of children in private schools. Over to you, Maddie. Thanks, Grandma. Uh, Private schools will receive $130 billion in funding by the Commonwealth Government over the next eight years. $73 billion for Catholic schools, $57 billion for independent schools. Just a minute. Can I, can you repeat those, those figures again? I this is, can. this is Commonwealth Government. This is taxpayer money. We're talking billions and billions of dollars. It really is horrific. Mm. So that was $73 billion for Catholic schools and $57 billion for independent schools. That is not including all of the billions that the state governments give or the other billions, the hidden billions, in Mm. taxation exemptions. Mm. So you can probably double those figures and you're really looking at huge, huge sums of money. But they still charge fees to keep the lower orders out of their marvellous resources. It constitutes massive overfunding by the taxpayer because the Morrison government's funding model ignores a major source of family income used to assess the financial need of private schools. Commonwealth funding of private schools is determined by family income, but it ignores income received from the bank of mum and dad, which pays school fees directly and indirectly through a myriad of supplements to family income. As a result, the capacity of private school parents to pay school fees is vastly underestimated and private schools are massively overfunded by taxpayers. The Bank of Mum and Dad is the fifth largest bank in Australia. Its home loans were worth $92 billion in 2017 with an average loan of $73,000. Actually, it's a much bigger bank because it also funds school fees, house renovations, household assets such as white goods, furniture and IT equipment, cars, holidays, medical expenses, and the list goes on. Unlike other banks, the Bank of Mum and Dad largely issues non-repayable loans. A 2020 survey by the finance company Mozo found that 39% of parents helped their children to meet educational costs. While this figure includes the cost of their own children's studying, it also includes payment of school fees for grandchildren. Other surveys show that many grandparents pay at least part of the school fees. The Industry Superannuation Fund, REST, found that almost one-third of grandparents use their superannuation to pay school fees for grandchildren. A survey by the education finance company EdStart found that only half of families with children in private schools can afford the fees from their income. So it's hardly surprising that grandparents are helping. Another financial services company reported that 60% of private school students have their fees at least partly paid by the grandparents. The Bank of Mum and Dad also helps indirectly by funding other purchases by families which frees up income to pay school fees. 
2020 survey by the finance company Mozo found that 32% of parents provided money for a home deposit, 14% acted as a guarantor, and 10% assisted with home loan repayments. 9% purchased a property outright for their child. Almost half, 46% of parents had contributed towards purchasing a vehicle for their children. 33% helped with ongoing bills and 27% paid for household items such as furniture. All this income provided by grandparents to their children as gifts is not included in the assessment of families' capacity to contribute to school fees. Money is fungible, so gift income frees up family income to be used for other purchases such as school fees. For example, Families supported by the bank of mum and dad do not have to choose between buying a home or educating their children in private schools. They can do both. The average non-repayable home loan from the bank of mum and dad frees up income that covers a substantial proportion of school fees. The average fees and other charges in independent schools in 2017 was $11,000 per student, which amounts to $135,000 over 12 years of schooling. Income from the average parental home loan provides 54% of total fees for one child or 27% of the fees for two children. The average fee in Catholic schools was $3,000 per student, which amounts to $44,000 for one child over 12 years. In this case, income freed up by the non-repayable home loan is more than sufficient to fund school fees for one child or to provide 83% of the fees for two children over 12 years. These estimates are based only on the average home loan from the bank of mum and dad. The actual indirect contribution of grandparents to private school fees will be much higher because of all the other income provided by grandparents. Isn't that interesting? But the point is that are these parents of this generation, when they become grandparents, will they have the wherewithal to subsidise the fees of the next generation. And uh, when the insecure middle class of the next generation are confronted with the fees of private schools, they'll have to be looking at the idea of free, secular and universal in the public system. In fact, after the pandemic, large numbers of parents are already doing just that, and they are very sensible. Well, we'll have a bit of a break now, and then we'll come back with some further research being done on the bank of mum and dad. That's really the bank of the grandparents by Trevor Cobalt. Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.
Well, uh, listeners, this is Don's program, and we've been listening to um, how, in fact, a large amount of money that is available to a group called EdStart, who help parents pay. It's an afterpay program for school fees for private schools. How, in fact, the bank of mum and dad or the bank of grandparents um, is just not taken into account by the Morrison government when they assess the neediness of the private schools because we all know that it doesn't matter how wealthy they are, they still have needs and want taxpayers' money. Uh, But back to Maddie, who'll tell us some more about this very interesting private school slush fund. Thank you, Grandma. Um, Continuing on, income provided by grandparents is essentially non-declared income or early inheritance income. It's not included in the measure of family income used to determine the level of government funding for private schools. Given the extent to which grandparents provide such income, the family income measure vastly underestimates the capacity to contribute of parents of children in private schools. But this is not the only source of family income ignored by Morrison's private school funding model. As Save Our Schools has previously shown, there are other flaws in the model that cause the capacity to pay of families to be severely underestimated. For example, the model underestimates the income of families because it excludes the non-taxed component of capital gains as only 50% of the gain is taxable. Many high-income families with children in private school are likely to be recipients of this non-taxed income because 80% of the tax concession goes to the top 20% of income earners. Therefore, the financial need of private schools is overestimated, and they receive much more government funding than warranted. The overfunding runs into billions annually, billions that would be better used in supporting disadvantaged schools and students. The new method of funding private schools is just as flawed as previous methods of assessing the capacity to pay of parents. The problems associated with assessing the capacity to pay of families are insuperable. They ignore several sources of family and school income, as well as family and school wealth, and therefore lead to overfunding of private schools. These problems mean that the concept of capacity to pay should be abandoned in determining government funding of private schools. A new funding model is needed. The basic principle behind government funding of private schools should be that no school operates with less total resources than a community standard necessary to provide an adequate education for all students. Governments have the responsibility to ensure that children should not be deprived of an adequate education because their parents enrol them in under-resourced schools. Government funding for private schools should only fill the gap between the community standard and income from fees and other sources of income. Schools with private income above the community standard should not be entitled to baseline government funding because it would extend their resource advantage over public schools. Well, thank you very much. Uh, And that's, of course, what's been happening. Uh, But they're not getting away with it because people are doing their sums and Trevor Cobalt, who used to work on the Productivity Commission and who's a facts and figures man, is hot on their heels. But we'll have a bit of a break now and then we'll come back 
with a good news story. Housing for the Aged Action Group has gone digital to help stop the spread of the coronavirus, but we're still here. If you're over 50 years old and having problems with your housing, we can help. If you're having trouble paying the rent, problems with your retirement village manager or concerned about your caravan park, give us a call on 1300 765 178. We can also help connect you with aged care services and emergency relief if you need it. Stay safe, everyone. Well, uh, we're back with the Dogs Program, the Australian Council for the Defence of Government Schools, and we promised you before the break a good news story, and there is a very pleasant good news story. Public education goes where no one else will go. They go into the remote areas. They go where private schools' business plan just won't work. They go where there are very few children indeed in the remote areas. And one of the best results in the recent BCE exams has come out of a very interesting little public school in the outbox. These children would not have got an opportunity to have a very good education, and they have had a very good education and have excelled in their education if there had not been a public system to educate them. So Maddie's going to tell us about the little school that could, a small school in the paddock, is a BCE star. This is a lovely article, piece of writing, by Madeline Heffernan and Craig Butt, and it is so inspiring. A small school in a paddock has outperformed highly regarded Melbourne State schools this year based on typical student scores. East Lodden, Chapter 12 College in Dingy, about 48 kilometres north of Bendigo, had only five Year 12 students in 2020, but recorded some of the best VCE results of government schools across the state. East Lodden Prep to 12 College VCE English teacher, Sarah Clare, with Year 12 students Hugh Cartwright, Ella Rowe, Hayley Ramskill, Jasmine Condliffe and Sophie Hay. The school's median study score was 34 and almost 14% of its study scores were 40 or above. The median score is a good measure of typical student performance. It doesn't capture individual students who achieve results far above or below their peers. Sarah Byrne, the school's year 9 to 12 coordinator, said that the success was inspiring more success. I'm getting a sense that our kids are looking at the older kids and wanting to do the same that there's an increased level of motivation to do well and be part of that success, Miss Byrne said. It's awesome to see kids walking into an exam with that confidence and walking out so happy with what they've done. That was also a quote from Miss Byrne. While the best-performing government schools were Melbourne Select Entry Schools, McRobison's Girls High School and Melbourne High, Nossel High and Suzanne Corey High, Small country schools from lower socioeconomic areas had some of the best median study scores. These include Terrell College in northwest Victoria and Mortlake College and Carpenton Secondary College in western Victoria. Tyrrell College achieved a higher median study score than highly regarded Melbourne State schools 
Baldwin High, McKinnon Secondary and Melbourne Girls. For most students, 2020 was their strangest year of study. That's very understandable. So VCE results are more hotly awaited than ever. Smaller schools have fewer students enrolled in VCE compared with their city counterparts, which means that the median can fluctuate greatly year on year based on the performance of a handful of students. But this should not discount these schools' performances. East Lodden has demonstrated statistically significant improvement over the past decade and won the Ages Schools the Excel Award for government schools in regional Victoria earlier this year. An age analysis in 2019 found more than half of all regional and rural schools had recorded a slump in their BC results over the past decade. Mortlake College Principal Danny Forrest said, while a lot of things are thrown around about disadvantage in the bush, I'd like to say we've got a lot of advantages too. The big advantage is our students are in very small classes and we have a ripper bunch of VCE and VCAL teachers, Mr Forrest said. We're very happy and proud of the kids. And we are very happy and proud of the teachers. And a bit later, we will hear about how it is in the teachers we trust. We cannot trust our politicians to educate our children, but we can trust our public school teachers, and they have done a wonderful job. They have. Not only in that school, but in many, many schools throughout the state. Uh, But we'll have a bit of a break. And the next um, session is not a good news session, but I think that we have to be aware of the dangers. A lot of people have heaved a sigh of relief because America has a change of changing of the guard at the top in the um, in the presidency and the Senate and the Congress, but but the high the Supreme Court has been stacked and uh, things are not necessarily as rosy in the education field as they were pre pre Trump era. Diane Ravitch. Uh, has a very interesting article which is actually a book review. So we'll be coming back after the break to look at this. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids, strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mawbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
still listening, I hope, to the dogs program, and we have something very interesting from the United States of America. Diane Ravitch always keeps us up to date on her blog, and she has on her blog John Thompson, who's a historian and retired teacher in Oklahoma, who has reviewed a histo- another historian, Jack Schneider, and journalist Jennifer Blackbird's new book, We'll send send for it and we'll read it and find out more about it. But it's called A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. And they've uh, collaborated also on podcasts. So we're now going to hear from Dale. And she will tell you just exactly what these book reviewers have to say about A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, I've got the article here where uh, John Thompson, as you said, is reviewing A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. The first two-thirds of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door by Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire is an excellent history of attacks on public education. It taught me a lot. The first lesson I learned is that I was too stuck in the 2010s and was wrong to accept the common view of Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos as a joke and a political knife. The last one-third left me breathless as Schneider, Schneider's and Berkshire's warnings sunk in. A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door starts with an acknowledgement that DeVos isn't the architect of the emerging school's privatisation tactics. That radical agenda has been decades in the making. But she represents a new assault on public education values. As Schneider and Berkshire note, accountability-driven, charter-driven, corporate reform were bad enough, but they wanted to transform, not destroy, public education. They wanted some form of public school. DeVos's wrecking ball treats all public schools as targets for commercialisation. Schneider and Berkshire do not minimise the long history of attacks on our education system, which took off after the Reagan administration's A Nation at Risk blamed schools for a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future as a nation. They stress, however, that it was a part of Reagan's belief that our public schools and government overall were failing and how it propelled a larger attack on public institutions. Forty years later, 
free marketeers are driving a four-point assault. They contend that education is a personal good, not a collective one, and schools belong in the domain of the free market, not the government. According to this anti-union philosophy, it is the consumers who should pay for schooling. The roots of this agenda lie in the use of private school vouchers that began as as an anti-desegregation tool. Because of consumer psychology, the scarcity of private schools sent the message that they were more valuable than neighbourhood schools. But neither private schools nor charter schools made good on their promise to deliver more value to families. Similarly, right-to-work legislation and the Janus versus AFS CME ruling have damaged but not destroyed collective bargaining. Neither did online instruction allow for the for, allow the for-profit Edison schools or more recently for-profit virtual education charter chains to defeat traditional schools. Despite their huge investments in advertising spin, these chains produced disappointing outputs. For instance, DeVos claimed that virtual schools in Ohio, Nevada and Oklahoma had grad rates approaching 100%. In reality, the results were abysmal. To take one example, the Oklahoma Virtual Charter Academy had a 40% cohort graduation rate, not the 91% that DeVos claimed. It received. Are you saying, are you saying that DeVos, like Trump, dealt in just outright kids? Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) Yes, the um, fake facts. (laughs) (laughs) It received a D on the Oklahoma A to F report card for 2015-2016. Also in 2015, a Stanford study of 200 online charters found that students lost 72 days per year of learning in reading and 180 days in math in a 180-day year. Such dismal results prompted more calls for regulations for choice schools. Rather than accept more oversight, free marketeers doubled down on the position that parents are the only regulators. To meet that goal, they borrowed the roadmap for higher education for profits, adopting the tactics that failed educationally but made them a lot of money. So, Schneider and Berkshire borrow the phrase lower ed from Tressie Cotton as they explained how privatisers patterned their movement after higher ed where 10% of students attended for-profit institutions. Their profits came from the only part of public or higher education that could produce big savings, reducing expenditures on teaching. This meant that since the mid-1970s, tenure-track faculty dropped by half, as tenured faculty dropped by 26%. Consequently, part-time teachers increased by 70%. Moreover, by 2010, for-profit colleges and universities employed 35,000 persons. They spent $4.2 billion, or 22.7% of all revenue on marketing and recruiting. In other words, the market principles of the gig economy are starting to drive the radical, personalised education model that would replace 
government school. Savings would begin with the uberization of teaching, a glimpse of the future where the value of a teaching career is undermined can be found on the shared economy job section of Job Monkey, where education has its own niche. Teachers could expect to be paid about fifteen dollars per hour yes. and and that leads to the system of education a la carte, which affluent families need not embrace but that could become a norm for disadvantaged students. What is advertised as personalisation is actually unbundling of curriculum. Algorithms would help students choose courses or information or skills and teachers who could be downsized to tech support that students think they need. Worse, this advertising is full of... Emotional appeals, questionable claims, and lofty promises. Its brand pioneers started with elite schools self-promotion, and it led to charters adopting the borrowing prestige dynamic, where, where the implicit message is that charters share the supposed excellence of private schools. And then charters like Success Academy took the brand identity promotions a step further spent $1,000 per student on marketing Success Academy logo on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, baby onesies and headphones. Schneider and Berkshire also described the KIPP brand guidelines video, which compares the charter chain to Target, which wouldn't represent its business differently in different cities. So it says that every conversation a KIPP teacher has about the school is a touch point for KIPP's brand. Similar advertising techniques include the exaggerated size of waiting lists for enrolling in charter chains. Their marketing role is sending the message, look how many people can't get in. Charters have even engaged in market cannibalism. For instance, issuing gift cards for enrolling children in the school. Worse, demographic trends mean that the competition between choice schools and traditional schools will become even more intense as the percentage of the school-aged children declines. For instance, 80% of new households in Denver since 2009 didn't have children. And even though corporate reformers and DeVos-style free marketeers have failed to improve education, their marketing experts have shown an amazing ability to win consumers over. So here's Schneider's and Berkshire's future forecast. The future will be ad-filled. The future will be emotionally manipulated. The future will be micro-targeted. The future will have deep pockets and the future will tell you what you want and well who would be a parent in these times with children um our advice of course is to go with the schools that you can trust and they are the public schools and uh, our teachers have done a wonderful job uh, we do not want our teachers to be marginalized and put into Uberization, but um, that is uh, there is no no certainty that that is not going to continue in America and Australia. Of course, has the 
uh, distinction of making America and the UK's mistakes after them quite religiously. Mm-hmm. But um, we're sorry to give you such bad news, but um, it shows how much we have got to fight the privatisation of education here in Australia. Uh, fortunately, although 36% of children in Victoria go to private schools, let's think about the other percentage, the other 66%, or sorry, 64%. It's 66% more likely all around Australia because Victoria is more private school oriented than a lot of other states in Australia. But we'll have a bit of a break and we'll come back and talk about our teachers, shall we? You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years, but it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or whatsoever, especially you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment. They're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment, and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are falling. In the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, you've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. Yes, well, you're listening to the Dogs Program and we hope you're still with us because it's a long program with a lot of meat in it, a lot of thought in it. But uh, we would now like to uh, read to you something from Parsi Salberg, a very famous Finnish educator from the Gramsci Institute in New South Wales. He has written an article after the virus, In Teachers We Trust. Over to you, Maddie. Thanks, Grandma. What is the X factor that helps schools through the current global health crisis? Lessons from around the world tell us that where schools have flexible curriculum arrangements, creative approaches to real problem solving, and confidence in collective professional wisdom of teachers as leaders, navigation through the tough times gets easier. It's all about trust in teachers to do what is best for every child in their schools. Every crisis has a silver lining, and so does this one. It may not be exactly what many people would hope, transformed education, rethought schools, or reimagined learning. It may actually be much better than that if we play our cards right. Teachers may finally be recognised as essential frontline workers, as trusted professionals. That would change everything. Much has been said and written already about how the pandemic has been shaking up many things in our lives. It has disrupted the way we live, work and communicate with one another. It is also changing how we teach and learn. Some of these changes may have permanent consequences. Some others may go away as we grow out of this crisis. The pandemic that has been able to close down entire societies, including their education systems and economies, 
has been a real stress test for governments and their ability to handle unpredictable, complex situations. One strategy has trumped all others. Most heads of democratic nations have consistently relied crisis management on advice from their medical and health experts. In other words, political decisions about coping with the crisis and the way ahead have been made based on the best of what science and research can offer. Now, we know that this is not what often happens in reforming education systems. More often than not, efforts to improve teaching and learning in schools have been motivated by political promises and ideological interests rather than research-based evidence from the best available experts. It's not uncommon that large-scale education reforms are designed in rush by non-educators and then implemented top-down without proper expertise on how complex change in schools successfully happens. Who are those who understand better than anybody what schools would need instead to improve teaching and learning for all children? The teachers. Of course the teachers. In some countries where the teaching profession is held in high prestige, the road through the pandemic caused disruption has been easier than in places where teachers are not treated as professionals and capable to decide how to solve wicked problems. In other words, those who trust teachers tend to have a brighter future. After the virus is gone, if it ever will, we should ask less what to change, and more, how desired change should happen. Even if we get the what part right, but fail to realise how to make it happen, we will find ourselves in the same disappointing situation, where reforms end up being mostly failures. A necessary condition is that the politicians should trust teachers and their collective professional wisdom in transforming education for the uncertain future just like they've relied on virologists and health scientists in combating the virus until now. As I have written elsewhere, in transforming schools, we should learn to rely less on policy-driven reforms and more on successful ideas that have worked in various cultural settings and powerful networks that are spreading them without the mandate of the authorities. Well, what an interesting article. Thank you to Parsi Salberg and, of course, to Maddie, who's been helping us out this afternoon. It's great to have different voices on, on a, an hour-long program. My pleasure. I'm very passionate about government schooling. Great. Well, uh, before we go, there's just a little break, and then I'd like to talk about what has just hit the news, how... The Australian government has been urged to try and recover student loans from the dead. Unbelievable. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03 94198377 each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. At 03 3CR Community Radio, here to stay.
qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. As this government believes that by, by building more and more houses uh, for immigrants that may not come, but certainly for uh, young married couples who want a roof over their head, they are going to get us out of the current depression we are in. But they in fact need to produce tradesmen, skilled labour to do this. And whatever else we can say about privatisation and its abject failure, to educate our children, we can certainly point to the TAFE sector and what has happened since the 1980s with constant attempts to privatise it and then to um, allow people to make money on our children with the promise that the money that has been paid to the operators, about 19 billion of it, let's start with that figure, it's actually a lot more, but that has now got to be paid back by the children who were taken for a ride when they were supposed to be being made skilled, uh, particularly in the 1990s and since. Because all of these private enterprise uh, vet sector uh, groups have been set up or set themselves up to make money, get money from the government, and then the students themselves, often without any certificate to show for their problems uh, and their efforts, um, are expected to pay back all the money that these operators have run off with. Now, the Auditor-General up in New South Wales has brought out a damning report of what has been happening to uh, the TAPE modernisation program up there. And um, they say it's now clear that the entire purpose of the New South Wales government's restructure of TAFE was to save money and they had withdrawn $250 million up there from the TAFE budget. That's the public sector budget. But the report vindicates what the New South Wales Teachers Federation has been saying for the last decade, that it doesn't work and it won't work in a market model. No education will work in a market model. They're finding that in the United States and we're finding it here. But the TAFE sector is perhaps the worst example of the failure. But um, never mind, the money's got to be paid back by the students uh, who since the uh, 1980s have had to pay back their hex debt. There are enormous hex debts. Uh, because education ceased to be free in the 1980s, thanks to the Labor Party, thanks to Mr Dawkins, uh, a pastoralist child from Western Australia, uh, part of the Western Australian landed elite, uh, he bought in the hex that you might remember. After he and got his degree for free. 
Yes, and his father, by the way, was the um, Byron of Hobart, but we won't go there. Um, now, the Australian government, uh, according to the um, Productivity Commission, which is a very interesting group, it's a public group, but it uh, gives the government perhaps what they want to hear. They say the government should try to recover unpaid student loans from people who have died. And vocational students should be charged minimum upfront fees to avoid perceptions of free money to study. How do you like that? The horror story. Uh, this public think tank, that's interesting that the um, Guardian calls the Productivity Commission a public think tank. Interesting. <laughs> It's made these controversial calls in its annual review of government services, which found that Australia's national training agreement has failed to meet key targets. Surprise, surprise. The key targets were for individuals, often overseas companies, to make money. The Commission has called for a shake-up of the $6.4 billion of public funding given to vocational education and training warning of poor value for money and a system plagued by confusing and ineffective rates of subsidy. Well, you get what you pay for. It's suggested that the federal government change the rules on debt collection to chase the unpaid loans of deceased students from their estates, treating student loans the same as any other debts. Such a scheme, they argue, would reduce the fiscal cost of vocational student loans without inhibiting access to training or reducing post-vocational education and training student incomes. But exceptions could be made for smaller states and extenuating circumstances. But the same changes would need to be applied to higher education loan programs. So the tertiary sector needs to be looked at. It should be free. It used to be free. My generation and the next generation, the baby boomers have now got those lovely bank accounts. They had it good. They had it free. But these next generations after the 1980s have been sold again and again apart, especially if they have gone through the private sector. But um, Yes, we uh, think that our time has, has come to an end and uh, we'll be back to talk about this some more next week. But for the moment, we have to say bye for now. Bye. I dreamed I saw Joe night, alive as you and me, says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead, I never died, says he, I never died, says he, in Salt Lake City, Joe, says I, him standing by my bed, 
They framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I did, says Joe, but I The copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe, I didn't die, says Joe, I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill. On to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.